This podcast is brought to you by Weaver House. And yes, we're sponsoring our own podcast this episode, but I wanted to take a moment to introduce you all to what we do. As I'll mention after the ad, Weaver House is a yarn shop, textile studio, and weaving school currently located in Philadelphia. I like to say that our woven practice is grounded in the idea of growing a tangible language to regain tactility and a handmaking consciousness within the home and in relation to the body. We're currently not open to the public due to COVID, but our online shop is very active and we are offering curbside pickup for local Philadelphians who need a yarn boost. Our shop is carefully curated with specialty yarns and fibers sourced from around the world, hand-selected goods, crafting materials, looms, and weaving equipment. We also have free downloadable weaving patterns and resources. You can find us online at weaverhouseco.com, weaverhouseco.com, and on Instagram at weaverhouseco. Hi everyone, I'm Rachel Snack, the founder of Weaver House, a yarn shop and weaving school currently located in Philadelphia. And today I am joined by my sister-in-law who is also named Rachel Snack. Hi, I'm also Rachel Snack. <laughs> and I think that has to be our first order of business because having the same name is extremely confusing, sometimes even to our families. So for the time being, we're going to use our middle initials, meaning I'll be Rachel E., and then Rachel T. Yeah, which is me. I'm a weaving enthusiast. I've gotten into weaving since joining the Snack family, and I live in Maryland. I work for a Christian ministry that serves college students, and I'm also a big advocate for racial justice, which often means asking questions like, where does this come from? Why are these structures the way that they are? How are we connected to others? And is everyone being given an equal voice in this conversation? which lends itself really well to podcasting in general, but also looking at art and how it connects us to each other and the world around us. So I wanted to start this first episode by introducing Rachel T because I think if you're tuning in, you most likely already know who I am. And if you don't, you'll learn more in the conversation we're about to have. So as I mentioned before, Rachel T is my sister-in-law and I've taught her how to weave over the past few years starting with a frame loom, moving on to a rigid heddle loom, and then most recently introducing her to floor loom weaving. As we've grown closer as sisters and also as she's become more familiar with the fiber art and weaving community, we've really begun to have interesting conversations surrounding art, craft, equality, textile history, and the list goes on. In one of these most recent conversations, she floated the idea of hosting a podcast for Weaver House where she could interview artists, makers, and historians about these subjects we believe are so important. We also realized that if we were asking these questions, more than likely others were too. And so the Material Culture Podcast was born. Rachel Esnack is a weaver and a textile conservator. She received her Bachelor of Fine Art in Fiber and Material Studies from the School of the Art Institute of Chicago and her Master of Science in Textile Design from Philadelphia University. She's also been the founder and CEO, the one-woman powerhouse of Weaver House uh, since 2014 when she founded it. So welcome, Rachel. Thanks for being here for our first podcast. Thanks for having me on our podcast. <laughs> our own podcast. So I think it's really interesting 
to enter kind of the space of being an artist, being a creator, and what that means to be someone who who creates, and especially with fiber, creating something like physical that like serves a purpose, but also like is beautiful. There's so many different reasons for creating textiles, but I think it's really interesting to look into like how that affects you as a person to create and with the connection between you and your art. So yeah, how do you find your art sacred in that way? Or how do you find it connected to spirituality or let it connect you to the world around you? I think that's what is most unique about weaving is that it is so interconnected across different cultures, languages, all around the world. Most historic, all historic cultures have this weaving language. But I think that the practice of weaving has really become a religion to me because I find that the relationship between the body and the loom, it creates a tactile narrative that helps to define, really define my human awareness of everyday living. And I think that's inherent with cloth. You know, cloth provides a way that we can intimately engage with the world where every day we're surrounded by cloth and textiles are so part of our everyday experience, what we're wearing, what we're using, that it really helps create like a context for what it means to be human and how we can relate with the world. And that's like, when I think about that too, I also think about material culture, which is what we ended up naming this podcast, because that is our material culture as humans. And so weaving and making and being an artist has really helped me define my own humanity and also has helped me really feel connected to place, to land, to landscape, and has helped provide that context for like how I see those, those different parts of the world, I guess. Yeah. In that, like just kind of the act of creation ties you to somewhere or ties you to the thing that you've made. Yeah, I think so. And it like it, it's like a grounding sensation when you're at the loom. I write about this sometimes, and I've also read about this, um, not specific to weaving, but just this idea of like the infinite grid. And so like we're all part of this infinite grid. And at one point, a few years back, I started to think about it as like the grid of my loom, like the actual warp and weft of my loom, like extending beyond my loom and to infinity and how that was connecting me to every other weaver. And I know this sounds kind of poetic, but just this idea of this like interconnected line that we're all as we're making and we're weaving that this grid extends everywhere. And so that weaving on the loom helps create a visual of, of who I am apart from the loom too, because I'm actually creating cloth. Yeah, it's kind of interesting even like on the floor loom as you're adding rows of of weft, it like falls into place as you're doing it as if it was always supposed to be there, right? There's this very like meditative kind of way that the loom works, but also that there's so much intricate design, right? And that it just keeps going like a pattern. I don't know. It's it's really, there's a lot of metaphors within that, but I think also just even, yes, there are. <laughs> even just the act of creating itself, right? Like ties us to this world. And like, I don't know, I think a lot of like the existential questions that have been raised this year in terms of like, what is the meaning <laughs> of, of all, all of this? Like, what, what is the point? Like being able to create something tangible really makes a purpose, like I think in a way mm-hmm. and, and ties us to the physical um, in a way that you could, this year it was easy to get really disconnected. That's a really interesting point too, because I think there was a part 
of me that this year really struggled with like, what is the point of making mm-hmm. or what is the point of being an artist when all of this is happening in the world? Like not only the pandemic, but then everything that was happening with like social equality and black lives matter and like seeing people that were like truly really in pain and dying and suffering. And then thinking like, why am I sitting in my studio making art was like a really hard moment for me to overcome. And I think what did end up, what I was able to really find value in is exactly what you're talking about. And I think that really helped me reevaluate like my place as an artist and also helped me create a new kind of trajectory of like where I want to bring my art in the next year and like who I want to collaborate with and reach out to and like, you know, start projects with. It also kind of helped me re-navigate that. Yeah. And I want, I do want to get into that a little later, but I think just this question of what does it mean to be an artist? Like this thing that feels really personal and tender and like very, yeah, sacred, you know, to create art and to share this piece of who you are, but then to also um, do that for a living and like kind of be a businesswoman and figure out what that means to have those two things together. Like how have you navigated that and hold held both those identities and tension in creating, you know, to express yourself and to make something really special versus creating to make a living and, and teach others how to create. Yeah. It's an interesting intersection to navigate. And sometimes I think I'm choosing to be a businesswoman so that I can be an artist and not necessarily that I'm an artist who is also a businesswoman. And it's still something that I'm like struggling with. Cause I think it really comes into play when I'm making art, but using yarns that I sell in my shop. And my students and customers may want to recreate that piece because I'm using yarns that I actively sell and market without realizing that I'm also an artist and my work is not always meant to be copied. And why I say like not always meant is because like sometimes I make patterns that I release with designs that people are welcome to copy. But I think the nuance of this is kind of lost when you're an artist and a businesswoman because obviously some things I am releasing for people to recreate, but I also have my own practice. And so it's still something that I'm really trying to figure out, but I think it's an important conversation that like artists who also want to be business people need to talk about more. And so that our communities can also have that understanding and language, like we're figuring out how to navigate both those paths and that they kind of have a role to play in that, that like they might see something that they want to make, but maybe there, there needs to be some sort of filter of figuring out if they can recreate that thing in a meaningful way that doesn't, you know, step on any toes or or hurt anyone's feelings. Well, yeah, it's, it's interesting because I think I've seen that impact for you and what it does to you, even like emotionally, personally, when work is taken that that feels so personal, that that feels so invasive, like you've been violated, you know? Yeah. Um, And I think that that feels so real for you, but then also like on a greater scale, when we look at, you know, the cultures whose weaving techniques have been more or less stolen and been used without really crediting or being given permission from the people who came before and how that acts on a community of people over time, right? We see that across culture in ways that, yeah, just things have been taken from different cultures and monetized and not 
people haven't been reimbursed. And I think with art, that feels more than just even, you know, there's the physical impact of like the economics of that, that people aren't being compensated for their original ideas and their work. But there's, there's a really visceral spiritual feeling of that. There's a visceral, like emotional feeling to that, that something that you've created, something that you've put your heart and soul into has been taken from you. Yeah. It's something you and I talk about often. And so I know it's something that we've been like wanting to have a a greater conversation about. It's been easier recently to have more empathy in the fact that what you just mentioned, I'm feeling this way that my work is either being copied or misused in a way that I didn't give permission for Mm -hmm. and how deeply, like you said, that hurts me or affects me because so much of myself is poured into my work that it feels really personal. But then to think about that on a grander scale, like I think it's been really helpful for me to realize, well, like you said, I'm utilizing weaving techniques that have deep rooted ancient traditions within them and that I'm dyeing my warps with indigo. I did not grow the indigo and I did not cultivate the indigo. And like, where does indigo come from? And where is that dyeing technique from? And I'm using in my work, but I don't own that technique. And I think like trying to really contextualize yourself as an artist in that way that like you have to, or what I've been doing is like recentering this idea that like I'm creating, that I have ownership over what I create. Because I think that's the most freeing idea to think about like, are you really creating to like what you're creating? Are you creating to like inspire and share and uplift others and essentially to further commemorate and to celebrate these traditions? And then if you are really doing it for that reason, is it more important that what you made belongs to you and that you can only make it and that no one else can have it? Or is it more important that you are setting it free almost? No, that makes sense. Like, how can we create in a way that's mindful of those that have gone before us? Like that honors the traditions of weaving and that also it's not just gatekeeping like new people who are coming to weaving, but sometimes it's pushing out its originators. It's pushing out people who come from the cultures that it originated with, whether that's like a cost barrier, whether that's just not having the networks. I think that's a huge barrier to everyone being able to create. And It's just crazy because I think the insights that we get from our cultural backgrounds, the kind of things that we value are translated into our work all the time. So there's just so much in the fine arts world that like, I don't think if it does recognize like host cultures, like it doesn't pay them back for recognizing it. And oftentimes it's not really recognizing the true intentions of original creators. Yeah. And that's also why I think it feels to me as an artist to take it like one step further that like when a large company or a fast retail, fast fashion, fast retail company then takes one of these textiles and like mass produces it in a sweatshop somewhere, like when I see these things, they feel even more aggressive and more egregious because it's like so far removed from its origin. And so when you see a wall hanging that's woven, that's being sold at Target for $25, and is woven out of synthetic materials and is called a tapestry, it just like drives me bonkers because I'm like, someone is purchasing this and hanging in their home without even understanding what the word tapestry means. And that most of those textiles are still hand woven because it's impossible to produce that on a machine. So then that 
automatically means it's being produced in a sweatshop or in a shop that has like really poor conditions in a third world country. And so that's kind of like a whole other level of this like idea of theft or copying that then like goes beyond even just like maker to maker. And it's another thing that I just think about as a businesswoman so often, even with the way that like I source my materials and where my yarns are coming from and the whole supply chain, there's just so much there to unpack. And then I just think that there's not enough education and there's not enough conversations around these practices because people just don't understand where textiles come from. So they don't know that they're supporting this pretty like toxic system that's in place. I mean, it comes down to every, every part of that. There's, there are instances where the designer is not being fairly compensated, but then, yeah, the people who are assembling these, where the materials come from and how they're sourced, there's so many levels in which ethics have just been thrown out the window, right? And we can get these really cheap wall hangings and it, all of a sudden everyone has one, right? And then we're on to the next kind of fad in terms of creating too, which is not what any of this was meant to be. So I don't, I, I don't know. It's really interesting though, because we still do want People creating is a good thing, right? And, and we want people to be able to make art. And your business is so much about encouraging other people to create about, you know, whether that's through weaving patterns, whether that's through selling materials or teaching how to use the floor loom. So how, how do you kind of navigate that in terms of, you know, wanting to let beginners study textile artists to know what they can do and what they can try, um, but also that it's not like you become an expert overnight and it's pretty easy to like set up an Etsy shop and start pumping out weavings and trying to make a living off of that. But we also want to honor artists who have dedicated years to building their craft and really understand textiles. And, and how, do, how do we do both those things in encouraging new creators to explore things without taking away value or taking away ideas from more experienced creators? It's such a good question because you know, it's something that I've struggled with for years, trying to bridge this gap between who is a career weaver or maybe like a career artist versus who is like a hobbyist weaver and trying to find like a common ground between the two and ways that I could like serve both of those type of weavers. But I think something that in the pandemic, the pandemic has really helped me to take a step back. I think it's helped us all to slow down a bit, take a step back and really truly consider if I am seeing this as an issue in the weaving community or if, if it's something that I really care about because maybe issue is, is labeling it as something bad. I don't think it's bad. I think what it is, is that a lot of new weavers have not committed to actually like learning about the craft and the history of weaving. And so they start making weavings and maybe this is like where there's a gray area with like appropriation, either from other artists or from, you know, other cultures and other races where they they might be culturally appropriating something without even knowing that they are, or they might be copying someone without knowing that they are. And an experienced weaver can see that in a heartbeat because they have all the context to really point that out, but a newer weaver might not have that context. And so what I think the way that I'm beginning to think about approaching this is that my job as 
a more experienced weaver, I've had the privilege of gaining two degrees in textiles and I've been weaving for almost a decade is to try and just create as much education around this as possible. And I think that's really what's lacking is like, you are expecting someone who might've found weaving through Instagram and it really inspired them. And maybe they find it meditative and healing and they found their own spirituality and weaving, which is amazing, but they just like, don't know enough about weaving to maybe know that they're touching on some areas that are sensitive, or maybe like, you know, we mentioned that they're, they're doing something that might be hurting someone else's feelings. And so if I, as an educator can just create as much information as possible, either through something like a podcast or publications or anything to give people more of this context and to bring other people into that conversation, then I think we can all start to have a common language. Like we can all start to formulate this idea of like who we want to be as a community and how we can support each other, no matter what level of weaving you're at. And I think like a lot of it goes back to just how is the way that I am practicing this like affect others? Because I, I don't know. I think a lot of people think about art just as like a hobby, right? Or like a craft, but that it really is so interconnected with like where the fibers are coming from, where the practices come from. And I think honoring people who came before us just gives us more care for those people. I guess I think about when when we had this conversation last, I was talking about it in terms of food. So everybody needs to eat. I think, I think to an extent, like everybody needs to be creative in some way too, Yeah. Um, but that food is so connected to different people all around the world, right? Nobody can eat without having a place to get their, their groceries and nobody can eat without having someone who's gotten those materials together for them. And that oftentimes the people who are doing this most essential work of gathering the materials and like making them available to us are not being compensated, are working in unsafe circumstances. And ultimately we don't care about their well-being without realizing that like, if we don't care about these people, it hurts everybody. And I think to an extent art is working the same way, especially when you think about people who pick up a weaving kit somewhere, um, like at Michael's, not thinking about the cost that's not included, right? In that like $15 weaving kit and people who have kind of been trampled to make this really accessible to them. Well, and along those lines, just to add to that, I think everything you said is, was a really eloquent way of putting that. And then also using that food analogy, I think that's something that I've also been reshaping in my brain. Like if you, if you or I go to the store and get curry powder and make a curry and eat it, that's not cultural appropriation, right. but how much better would that curry taste if we really understood like the origin of curry, or we really understood why curry is so important. Right. And so the same with weaving, like someone recreating a weaving, say like in a Navajo tapestry style, it's like this gray area of if you are not honoring that tradition, if you don't know where that's coming from, it makes it not only less enjoyable, but it's also kind of not paying. It's not like doing your due diligence to like truly enjoy what you're making. Well, and it's such, it's such an American thing to think of things as very individual and divorced from its origin like that. We can even practice kind of spiritual sacred practices of native Americans without acknowledging like their, their life. And like, in, in a lot of ways, how we've, 
that we're desecrating in a way, like not only their land, but their practices when we don't honor the people who are still here and remember. There's, I think a lot of other cultures do a better job of practicing remembrance and remembering, you know, ancestors, those who came before and history, which I think is a lot lacking in our American education. Yeah. That goes to also like teaching, right? If you're teaching any sort of tapestry weaving class and you're not talking about the Navajo weaving techniques, or you're not talking about Native Americans, you're completely missing the point of like how tapestry has even come to be in like a modern sense of what tapestry is and how that like originated in the US and where that comes from. And the like really rich tapestry practices that are still taking place in the Navajo Nation and all of those weavers that are doing really amazing work. Well, and I think about how the way that we create, you know, whether that's through textiles, whether that's through the, like the analogy of food, it it reflects a set of beliefs, right? Like about how the world is, about how we engage with that. Like I think about food from the South that's really influenced by African-Americans who came here as slaves. A lot of Southern food has its roots in using the cheapest ingredients that they were able to take something that the master's house would throw away and make it really delicious and how that's like a part of the culture just that is able to be made really beautiful. And that there's a, there's a set of beliefs in there about like who we are as people who, where we come from that, like you said, just makes it like richer. Like you understand more about that culture, different cultures through how they make food. I think about like my grandfather's from Romania and like makes a lot of Eastern European food. And it's all like really tough, like food that kind of lasts and that that really reflects some of the like hardy, tough culture of Romania and of Eastern Europe. But I think the same goes with, with weaving is that, you know, the way that we create reflects something about how life was for people and how that shapes who we are. And I also, I just want to add, I too am still learning all of this. Like this is all something that I, I am not an expert on by any means. You know, I didn't, when I taught tapestry weaving classes years ago, I did not touch upon the Navajo. Like I didn't really know anything about Native American weaving. So it's, it's something that I'm still learning about. And I'm still personally trying to break down, literally break down, like what is material culture and how is this so resonated in our daily lives? And how is this so part of our history that we don't talk about? And so that's what's become inherently so important to me. And it become clear to me that the more we know about that, the more conscious we can be as weavers, as makers, as artists, as just consumers, knowing how and where we want to spend our money, what we want to create, and what type of practices we really want to implement in our daily lives. I mean, so much of this is going to be gradual. So much of this it's really impossible to shop completely ethically wherever you go, but striving to be like a little bit better one day at a time and really challenge ourselves though, to not give up on this and and to feel it urgently that this is going to make a better world if we're able to create ethically and create with each other in mind. But yeah, I mean, I think what you're saying about just getting started in this is where a lot of people are after 2020, just starting to ask kind of new questions about racial inequality, about why we've done things the way that we've done them for so long. And, you know, what needs to really be torn down, what practices need to die so that people can have a fair shot at this. So how, how has this year, how has the spotlight shown on racial inequality 
affected you and how you view your work and how you view the industry? It's been a huge eye opener. I mean, I feel like you can't walk away from this year unchanged. If you are really practicing self-awareness and practicing empathy, it would be impossible to walk away from this year without feeling change and knowing that things need to change inside of yourself and also on a much larger scale. And I think for Weaver House, for me personally, it was really an awakening moment where I realized I have always felt like I've been an advocate for equality and specifically within like women's rights. I've always felt I checked off the boxes of like donating money to the ACLU to talk about it, to spread the word. But I wasn't specifically thinking about race and any in within equality. Like I wasn't practicing anti-racism, which I've learned even that that's a term, you know, within the past year and have been studying up on what that means. And I, I wasn't actively practicing equality beyond like what my own experience of equality is, which is as a white woman, small business owner, and we're both white women. And so we're having this conversation with a white lens. And I think that's something else that's important to note. But I think it really helped me reshape my approach as a weaver, not only as a weaver and thinking about my the opportunities I've had as a weaver to be where I am now, but like how I want to actually run my business and who I want to support in that literally where I want to place my money and how important those decisions are. Like, I think I, I really hadn't thought about the gravity of making those decisions before that. It's the same thing. Like if everyone were to recycle properly, that would help out the planet. And it might seem like silly as a one person thing, but if everyone's doing it, it will actually make an impact. And even though I have a small size business, like my business alone can make more of an impact especially if there are other small businesses joining in on that. So I wrote this letter where I specifically outlined the things that I wanted to implement and change within Weaver House. And I've been slowly chipping away at that and just trying to really like restructure the way that I'm doing things, which has started with adding on yarn lines and trying to support Black-owned businesses, especially Black-owned women, woman-owned businesses, And then also when I'm thinking about field notes interviews for Warp and Weft, which is a publication that I've been working on, how to involve a more diverse selection of people that I'm actually interviewing outside of my immediate network. There's just been a lot of little ways that I feel like are adding up to be like a bigger holistic change with the way that I view the world in general, which is I think how you have to slowly go about changing and viewing your own biases and and figuring out like how you as an individual can can do better. Yeah, and I think when you start to look at how much is broken about our society and how long it's gone on for, it begins to feel really enormous and really overwhelming. And a lot of these things I think that you're finding and a lot of people are finding are like we're going to have to change the whole system. It's not just like adding diversity here or there, it's recreating what it means to be an artist or really taking a look at some of the obstacles and ways that we've said like, oh, this is always how it's done. So I'm interested to know just what are obstacles that you've faced in trying to implement some of these things and how have you responded? Well, I realized um, through doing 
reading and also just in our conversations and conversations with black women that I needed to completely shift the way that I was thinking. And it really felt like in the beginning of this, I was taking this white box that I had formed and I was trying to cram diversity into this like white box. And the reality is that I needed to dismantle that box and welcome boxes of that aren't white, you know? It's like not a box. It's like a sphere. Right. Exactly. We're having to rethink like what we thought we would have to rethink, right? Yeah. And that's kind of how this podcast was even born is like, I was talking to you specifically about Warp and Weft. And I was saying like, you know, within Warp and Weft, I've, I've really tried to diversify interviews, which really meant like going outside of my immediate network, because that was a blind spot for me that became really obvious is that I was contacting weavers and professionals that were in my immediate network and my immediate network was mostly white. And so the idea of diversity, it wasn't intentional to to not include a diverse group of weavers, but it was also not intentional in implementing diversity and recognizing that that was important. It was just kind of like lost on me. And so then I started to have conversations with you and with other friends of mine and some other black women that are either small business owners or weavers about what I was doing wrong. Cause it it really felt like I was like missing something. Like even if I was doing what felt like to me, more diverse interviews, people were still not seeing Warp and Weft as a diverse platform and that really hurt me. And I, it hurt me because I knew it was hurting other people. And so through that, I realized that I really needed to reshape the actual context of the way that I was like thinking about doing these interviews. And I think one of the things that became more obvious to me over time is that not every weaver considers themselves an artist, first of all. And I think breaking down what it means to be an artist is a whole other conversation. But also not every weaver feels like they have the time to write out an interview. I think it just felt like there was a lot of these roadblocks. And I also think this had been an issue with some of the past interviews that I've done. I think overall, I was presenting these interviews in a really academic way that was not inviting to everyone outside of like, if you had a very rigorous academic background, it might seem the questions might not make sense. And so you at one point said something like, well, why don't you record the interviews and and do some sort of recording and then transcribe them so it would make more sense and might be more inviting to people. And then just one thing led to the next. And we were like, well, maybe we should start a podcast. And then we really thought, you know, started to think about what we wanted a podcast to be. But I think just planting that seed of I have a I have one way of viewing the world, but that doesn't make it the right way. And it's also not helpful to not try to put myself in other people's shoes. And it's it's not helpful to not try to actively empathize because you can f- maybe feel like you're an empathetic person, but unless you're actually practicing empathy, you're not actually like changing your perspective at all. And so that was like a, a pretty big like aha moment for me. Well, I think there's a lot of good things you touched on there, but like thinking about that this work to decolonize, to create a better world, like it's really costly. We're not the first generation to see this as an issue. We're not the first people to like try and change the world, but 
there's a big cost. It would like, if it were easy, it would be done by now. So thinking about doing interviews in a different style and throwing away the kind of like email format that you would normally do, that's costly. That costs you time. And to incorporate Black voices or even just get a sense of what Black voices are out there in weaving requires Black creators time, which they should be getting compensated for, right? So that costs money. And that means that this change isn't going to happen nearly as quickly as we think it will. So I think a lot of the secret to staying in this fight is knowing that it has to be urgent and that it needs to be important to us, but that it's not going to be quick and that we need to like also do the work in a way that we don't get burnt out really quickly. And learning from activists, especially Black women who have learned that endurance um, from engaging in this struggle their whole lives. Well, I also want to mention too that I think it was important for me to recognize too that I have built a platform and a community. Like I, I reach a lot of voices but I'm still learning about all of this. And I am definitely not at a point where I could safely educate anyone else on these matters. And so it's way more important to bring in these other people, these other voices, and really amplify their voices and give them a platform and be able to utilize my space in a more meaningful way than just like posting one thing on Instagram or doing something that is less intentional. So that's also been something that's you know, been on my mind as we've started this podcast, but also as I've been formulating plans for 2021. I think it can feel hard to know how to engage because it's like, you don't want to talk over people, but you also don't want to be silent, but you also want to share in a way that like resonates with your audience, which probably means saying something, right. But not, not speaking over people. Like there's a lot of nuance to it that can be hard um, when you're kind of first getting started. But I think what you also said about empathy and like that it is practicing empathy is really important because I think the reason why empathy shuts down for so many well-meaning white people in this is that they feel like who they are is being attacked in one way or another, or like they feel like their worldview is being questioned, which it is, right? Like you have to start examining a lot of the way that you've lived your life and the things that you've believed when you understand the impact that racism has had on every facet of society. So I think to do this work, you have to be willing to admit when you're wrong too. And and I think about that a lot, like that engaging always means being open to criticism and being able to hear that and receive it and not make it about you. You know, I think about that even with a podcast, like there will probably be mistakes that we make in this even, but like being receptive to that and, and listening and doing better. I think people can feel really shut down when it feels like they have to be perfect, but it's not about being perfect, right? It's about acknowledging that we're not where we need to be and that, you know, there's always more for us to learn. Yeah, definitely. And that there's space for everyone. I think that like what you said, like, but I feel that way within weaving too. It's important to not like to realize there is space for every type of weaver and there is space for every type of creative, whether they consider themselves an artist or not. And that hearing those voices are valuable because like you you are practicing empathy, then you are broadening your worldview. And that it's just so, if you really want to be part of a community, that is what is so key. And I think that's kind of what's lost in social media is this like false idea or false sense of community that there's just like a lot of intentionality that happens in community that doesn't happen on social media. And so I think 
a lot of the things that I'm thinking about implementing and that I want to put into practice that I've committed to need to happen in a very tangible, real way that doesn't just exist on social or on my website. Which is interesting right now, right? Because we're so limited in what we can do tangibly in person. But no, I think it's really true. Like you spend too long on social media and you start to lose sense of what's really real around you and and the impact that you have in the community right there that you're in. Um, and And I think like, obviously you have an online community that's also like, there's important work to be done there too. But kind of holding both those things in tension, doing what we can in every area where we can. Intention. Yeah. That was, that was one of the names that Rachel thought we should name the <laughs> podcast. That was a workshop name, but it is such a poetic idea to think about the tension of the loom and also like how that resonates and so many other facets of our lives. Well, tension is a good thing, right? In weaving, but also in life. Like, I really think that that's huge to me to think about is that, you know, tension on the loom is what brings the work together. It's what allows work to be done because things haven't settled into a place where they're permanent. And I think that's so like, there's so much in that metaphor, right? In terms of the tension that we feel now, there was a sense probably shifting from the beginning of June into like the end of June that like, okay, this tension has dropped and now we're not going to see any progress. Um, But I think for people who want to be active in this work, we kind of have to hold that tension for ourselves and keep asking these questions even when everyone else isn't. I think a lot of white people feel as though like, man, why do I have to question all this stuff? Why do I have to think about this all the time? Like I've never had to think about this before. And the reality is that for non-white people, for minorities anywhere, right? Like they have to think about it, right? They're navigating a world that wasn't built for them. So when we start thinking about the way that our world has been built and the way that we function in it, we're able to change things, right? It's just like the tension on a loom where we can make changes, but that that tension feels painful and feels like very stretching. And But that in that beautiful work can be made. Gosh, and that, I feel like that really deeply connects also with textile making and textile culture and, and everything else that we've been discussing too. That same idea, you can apply it to all the other touch points that we've had in this conversation, just about honoring craft and tradition and, and what it is to be a weaver and what it is to be a maker in this modern age. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think a lot of criticism of like leftists and progressives can be like, well, you just hate everything. There's no right way to do anything. Is there, you know, like there's all these like questions to be asking, but I think it's just when you see it as an opportunity to make something more beautiful or more welcoming or more kind, why would you not do that? Why would you choose to not ask those questions when it has the opportunity to have such a big impact um, or good impact? Yeah, I agree. Yeah. Well, thank you for, for being a part of this, for helping me to start this podcast um, and hosting us. I'm excited to see where it goes. Yeah, me too. Fun stuff ahead. Thanks for listening, everyone. I'm going to be handing off the podcast to Rachel T. Now, who is going to conduct all future interviews. You may hear from me every so often for a special episode, but for the most part, they'll be guided by the very talented Rachel T. We'll be releasing episodes once a month and possibly more frequently in the future.
You can find more information about upcoming interviews, make a submission, and sign up for our mailing list to be in the know when we release new episodes on the Weaver House website, which is linked in the show notes. We're also on Instagram at Weaver House Co. Special thanks to Philadelphia musician Michael Myers, whose musical composition titled Weave is featured in our intro. Wishing you all light and happiness during this time. Be well, friends.